All right, good morning. Um, so we're going to start this morning by reading the passage, and then uh, we'll talk to the kids. We're going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the slides behind me. Um, and if you, you don't have one and you want one, there's some on a shelf in that room that are, that are free to take if you need one. All right, so this is Paul speaking. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." All right, kids, where are you guys at this morning? Raise up your hands. All right. So my first question for you is, what does it mean to be mature? Actually, hang on. Let me start here. What does it mean to be immature? Marshall? That is not, that would not be mature. That was an awesome voice. Eleanor? When you make bad choices, like on your own, instead of making good choices on your own? Allie? Acting like a baby? That would be immature. Ari, did you have something too? Okay, same thing. Levi? So you do, you're not mature and you do stuff that you shouldn't do. What do you got, Evie? Yep, yep. Josie? What? <laughs> The opposite of mature. Okay, well then, what about mature? What is maturity? What does it mean to be to be mature? Um, 
Kate? Your mom? She's very mature, especially on her birthday. Nolan? Knowing what something is? Yeah, sometimes. Ben? Being smart? So, hang on. Let me tell you a trick. Sometimes people say that you're something like, say, they say you're immature because they want you to think that they are mature. Am I mature? In some ways, maybe. I'm old, right? But I still make jokes about potty humor and get in trouble, which would be an immature thing to do. Maturity is like being old and and wise. Uh, And today, the reason why we're talking about maturity is because in our passage today, Paul talks about us, us growing into maturity in our faith. And what he means by that is us growing uh, closer to Jesus, like becoming more like him and less like who we would be without him. And he says something that I think is really, really interesting. And so before I tell you what that is, I want to ask you another question. What is your favorite part about coming to church? Marshall? The donuts. Okay, Eleanor, singing songs, Josie, Kids Connect, Kate, seeing your friends. How many of you like seeing your friends? How many of you, I right, put your hands down, how many of you would still come to church if there weren't any donuts, but your friends were still here? Put your hands down. How many of you would still come to church if there wasn't any singing, but your friends were still here? Okay, can I be honest with you? Put your hands down. One of the main reasons why I like coming to church is because my friends are here. This morning, I woke up and I didn't feel good. And I was in a really bad mood. And I was like, if I didn't have to be there, I would stay home and stay in bed all day because it's cold and rainy out and I don't want to go outside. But you know what happened? I came anyway, because I had to. But when I got here, I talked to Mr. Daniel, and I talked to Mr. Sean, and they, without even knowing how I was feeling, they cheered me up. And I'm, I'm glad I'm here. All right, here's the cool part. In our passage today, when Paul talks about maturity, he talks about two things. Growing closer to Jesus and growing closer to God's people. So one of the ways we get more mature is by hanging out with our friends at church. So sometimes we might feel like it's a, it's a wrong thing to want to come to church to spend time with our friends, but that's actually one of the best reasons to come. It's because us growing together with Christ's people is part of us growing in our faith in him. And so kids, I would encourage you to do two things today. Number one... Have fun with your friends at church. Not spazzy, crazy, crawling all over the walls kind of fun, but like some like slightly less crazy fun. 
And also, number two, I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents about what they learned about from this passage, about how we all can grow in maturity in Jesus. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into this passage together. Father, I thank you that, that you saw fit to send Jesus to, to save us to save us when, when, when we were your enemies, when we were on our own, when we were, were isolated from you and, and isolated from, from community. And Jesus, that you came to save us from our sins, to, to bring us back into relationship with you and to bring us back into relationship with one another. And Jesus, we thank you that you saw fit to accomplish your plan through the church, through gathering us together so that we wouldn't have to figure out how to do life on our own, so that we wouldn't have to go through life with, without friends. And so we pray this morning that, that you would send your spirit to, to help us to benefit together from what Paul has to say to us this morning, that, that you would use your word to draw us closer to you and draw us closer to one another. That, that we might together press on and, and grow to maturity in Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf, for, for all that you've done, for all that you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, in our passage this morning, we have kind of turned a corner in Ephesians. We're kind of officially in the, the application part of the letter. So Paul has been talking to us about all the things that Jesus has done and all the blessings that we, that we have because of it, all the implications of that gospel truth. And now he's kind of shifting to what we need to do about it. And so at the beginning of chapter four, that's what he's doing. He's just kind of explained in chapter three that, that who he is. He's talked about how he's someone that was set apart by God to be a minister to the Gentiles. He's been toiling and suffering on their behalf. He's in prison on their behalf. But, but from prison, Paul still has love for the Ephesians. And he prayed for them that they might continue to grow more and more and more in the knowledge of the love that Christ has them. So because of this, verse 1, Paul kind of shifts to talking about what they need to do. So he says, Paul, a prisoner, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. So he's been talking about his calling, and now he's shifting to talk about the calling that the Ephesians have, that, that all followers of Jesus have. So Paul has his calling, they have theirs as followers of Jesus, and he urges them he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And he's going to list out some ways for us to do that. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So, so walking in a manner worthy of the calling means living a life that's characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and, and bearing with one another in love. And so we're going to talk about kind of each of these things that Paul says we need to do if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. So for humility, like this 
this, this word is, is actually pretty interesting because before the Bible, before the Greek translation of the Old Testament, before the New Testament writings, this word, humility, like it wasn't a positive thing. In, in classical Greek literature, it was used in a, in a negative sense almost exclusively. In fact, it appears in like a list of vices. You know, so you think about the New Testament where it says like, you know, these are all the things bad people do. In classical Greek literature, humility would be one of those things. And so it's not something that was celebrated. It's not something that that good people did in the culture. It was, you know, weakness or or like a, a shameful lowliness. But what God wants for us is not what the world wants for us. It's not what our flesh wants for us. It's not what the devil wants for us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so humility is, is what we do, how we, how we think, how we feel when we have a right understanding of, of who God is and a right understanding of who we are in light of that. It results in us kind of lifting other people up instead of ourselves. Closely connected for Paul with humility is gentleness. He says that followers of Jesus shouldn't be, we shouldn't be characterized by, by like a harshness but a, but a gentleness. We shouldn't be overly defensive or combative, uh, but, but also not, not weak or soft. We should be gentle and humble. And, and this guy commenting on this passage, Frank Thielman, he explains how these two words are connected. This is what he says. I think we have a quote on a slide. Maybe. All right. The two terms together then refer to an attitude that both recognizes one's true position before God, uh, a suppliant in need of his help. So we're needy and is willing to be kind and gracious to others, even when circumstances might excuse one from showing these qualities. I think that last part is key, right? Even when circumstances might excuse us from showing these qualities. I notice there that Paul says, with, with all humility and gentleness. Not just some humility, not just humility and gentleness in the moments that it comes easier when we feel like it. And it's especially in the circumstances that are difficult that sets us apart when we begin to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He adds, Paul adds, to gentleness and humility, patience. And this one for me is the tough one. And as I was, as I was thinking about this this week, as I was being impatient... Uh, because we have sickness in our house, and for me, that's always opportunities for the Spirit to expose, expose my, my flesh and my frustration and my irritability and my impatience. And I realized that I tend to think of patience as mostly a passive thing. Like, patience is the, the absence of me doing something. I don't get to do the thing I want to do. Instead, I have to, have to wait. And so when I get in the car, I want to leave. I want to go somewhere, but I have to have patience until my kids get buckled in. Or, you know, I send someone a text or an email or I call them and I want to get something done and I have to wait for them to respond. Or I'm waiting for the, the UPS guy to bring me that shiny new thing that I've been waiting on. Like, whatever it is, to me, it's like it's the absence of doing something. But listen to how this biblical scholar defines this word. He says, patience is persistence in one's convictions, even when circumstances make this difficult. 
Patience isn't about not doing something. It's about us being who we're supposed to be, even when we're waiting on someone else. Right? It's us, us kind of living out our beliefs in moments where, where we're waiting on other people. And so for me, like in the car, waiting for kids to get strapped in, right? Am I going to be passively frustrated with them because they take entirely too long to fasten a seatbelt? Or instead, am I going to live out my convictions? Am I going to embrace the reality that my children are blessings from God? They've been made in his image. They are fellow human beings whose role isn't to do what I want them to do in every single moment. Am I going to fulfill my role to be a a good and kind father who points them to their heavenly father? Or am I just going to get frustrated? Right? Am I going to be frustrated because someone hasn't gotten back to me on my timetable? Or am I going to realize that, that just like I do, they have stuff going on in their life? Am I going to think not just about myself, but, but about them? And, 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 and instead of being frustrated, instead of being impatient, pray for them and whatever they're facing. Whatever it is that's you know, consuming their day like something is consuming mine. Right? Patience isn't a place where we do nothing. Patience is a place where we live in a manner worthy of our calling as we wait on other people. Right? If I'm passive, my heart is not going to do good things on my own. But if I'm actively trying to persist in my conviction, I'll probably walk in a manner more worthy of my calling. Last, he says that, that walking in a manner worthy of our calling means bearing with one another in love. And honestly, I think that like if, if we get to this point, if we're, if we're living with humility and with gentleness, if we are living with patience, then we're going to bear with one another in love. This is kind of the, the logical conclusion of doing these other things. But I think this is a helpful reminder from Paul that we're going to have to do this. Right? This, this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of you. But other people can be frustrating. Sometimes other people are, are a burden that we have to bear with in love. And like that's true in the home, that's true in the church, right? Conflict happens, and it's going to keep happening until Jesus comes back. Paul here is specifically talking about life in the church, and the reality is that conflict happens. We have had people leave BC because of conflict, We have had people come to BC leaving other churches because of conflict. Conflict happens. If we try to live our lives like the New Testament calls us to, and we're going to try to do that as a church, if we do that, conflict is going to happen, right? I'm going to sin against you guys. You guys are going to sin against me. We're going to sin against each other. People are going to get mad. People are going to get their feelings hurt. Like things are going to happen. It's reality. But the call for us as Christians is is not to run away. Instead, it's to bear with one another in love. It's to forgive as we've been forgiven. It's to, to show kindness. It's to pursue reconciliation. It's to be who we're supposed to be, live with humility and gentleness and patience, even when the circumstances are difficult. 
Why should we do these things? Why should we walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Why should we live with humility and, and gentleness and patience? Why should we bear with one another in love? Because of verse 3. Right? We're, we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because of Jesus, because of his Spirit, we've been brought together. Whether we like it or not, like we're together now. And we should maintain that unity by bearing with one another in love. In verse 4, he continues to talk about this unity. He says, there's, there's one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. He's talking here about the, the universal church, right? Like all believers, all time, everywhere, we are united in Jesus. But there's also diversity in the church. Verse 7, like grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So he's, he's brought everyone together, but then he's given different gifts to the church. And Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18 here. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So in the Psalm, if we were to go back and read it, what's happening there is the Lord is kind of ascending in victory over his enemies. And in Jesus' resurrection, he did the same thing, right? He was victorious over sin and death and Satan. And Paul says that in Jesus' victory, he, he gives gifts to the church. Verse 9, he's kind of explaining more of this. He says that Jesus descended from heaven to earth, and then after his death and resurrection, he ascended back to heaven. That's when he kind of had this victory. He distributed these gifts. And for the gifts, he's going to talk about them in verse 11. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these because we could spend forever on these, right? There are, there are whole books written about what these words mean and how they function in the life of the church. We're going to go through them quickly, and if you have questions or want to talk more about them, I would be glad to do that. So the first one, the apostles. The apostles were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, and they were the ones who kind of authoritatively passed on uh, his teaching and, and his gospel message. That's who the apostles were. And in the New Testament, the apostles are a limited club. You've got Jesus' original 11 disciples. You've got Matthias, who is added to replace Judas in Acts 1. And then you have Paul, who's added later because Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And no one else. The only other mention of apostles are, are false apostles. And it's particularly, I think, instructive for us that when Paul starts to kind of teach the next generation, Timothy and Titus, about how to structure the church and what they should do, he doesn't tell them, you know, go into all the churches and, and, and make new apostles. He says they should raise up elders and deacons. So these are the apostles. Prophets, they were already mentioned twice in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.20, Ephesians 3.5. And they're linked closely to the apostles there. But here, Paul kind of uses a slightly different phrase to talk about the prophets. And it seems that he's kind of referring to kind of followers of Jesus in general who are, who are gifted in the area of prophecy. Now, it's, I think it's important for us to recognize that in the New Testament, prophecy seems to be different from how it was in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you've got guys like uh, Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then, you know, all those minor prophets that we slogged through for a while. 
right? Those guys, their job is they're, they're kind of like God's press secretary. Like God says it, they say it. They're, they're like his mouthpiece, his, his spokesman. Um, like they speak his word, which is why we've got books called Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, because what they spoke was God's word and it was written down. In the New Testament, that role seems to shift to the apostles. That's why we have guys like Peter and Paul writing these books for us to study. And so in the New Testament, prophecy seems to serve to to build up the church. But it's also kind of evaluated, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, instead of just received as authoritative like it was in the Old Testament. So if I was to throw out a definition of like, this is prophecy in the New Testament, this is what I would say. Saying, I should have put this on the slide. Sorry, I forgot. Saying in your own words something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So saying in your own words something that God has has spontaneously brought to mind. So that means it's not something that was planned. uh, It's something that was spontaneously brought to mind. So some Christians would say that, that in the New Testament church, preaching is prophecy. And I would say it's not. I would say some preaching is prophetic. A lot of preaching isn't. A lot of preaching is me. I See, I planned to say that right there. And then I said it. Sometimes the Spirit will lead, and I'll talk about stuff that's not on my notes. And then one of you will come up to me later and say, I'm so glad you said that thing. And I'll say, thank you for appreciating the thing that I didn't plan at all. Not all preaching is prophetic. Sometimes it is, but, but most of the time it's not, and, and not all prophecy is preaching. A lot of times it's you being with someone and say, thinking, I feel like I need to encourage this person with this thing, and I don't know why, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then later they're like, that, God really used that. So prophecy, I think, is it's, it's that. It's us saying something in our own words that God has spontaneously brought to mind. If you have more questions about, about what that looks like and how that functions in the life of the church, I would be glad to talk to you about that. One more thing is that I think sometimes when we think of prophecy, we think of like predictive future prophecy, right? So there's an example uh, in examples in Scripture of someone saying like there's going to be a famine, and then the church prepares for that famine. I think prophecy like that still happens. But I think prophecy also happens with someone just simply encouraging you to follow Jesus more in a specific way that they had no way of knowing about. So sometimes it's future, sometimes it's just dealing with your struggles in your present life. Next word is evangelists. Evangelists were people like Philip and Timothy in the New Testament who went around sharing the gospel because they were particularly gifted at that thing. So there are still people that do that. that you, know, you sometimes spend time with people who they share the gospel with someone and that person just responds in a way and you think, man, every time I share the gospel, it does not go that way. That's because the Spirit has supernaturally empowered that person to do that in a way that, that you haven't been. And, and that's okay. He gives varied gifts to the church. That doesn't mean that the rest of us don't need to share the gospel. Right? We can't say like, oh, that's just the job of the evangelist. It's everyone's job. The last two words, shepherds and teachers, are, are more closely linked together grammatically than the other words in this list. 
And in fact, if you've got an ESV Bible, you probably have a footnote that has them hyphenated, shepherds, teachers. Paul is, is kind of communicating that these words go together. And so the word here for shepherd, it's used interchangeably in, in the rest of the New Testament in Acts 20 and then in 1 Peter to, in, in the, with the words elder and overseer. So it's the, the same job, pastor, elder, overseer. These words are used interchangeably in the New Testament to talk about the same office. And so uh, the shepherds are, are the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. And one of the roles that elders have is to teach the church what to believe and think about what Scripture says. Uh, Not all teachers are elders, but all elders are teachers. That's one of the qualifications that Paul lists for elders in 1 Timothy. And so all elders should be able to teach, and so that's why there's this role of shepherds and teachers. But more important than what all these individual words mean and how they function is what the purpose of them is. You see that in verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that these leaders were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Right? And so we've, we've talked about this a lot at BC over the years. But the reality here is that this passage makes it very clear, explicitly clear, that the work of ministry in the church is done by the saints, by by individual, by, by corporate followers of Jesus. We do the work of ministry because we're followers of Jesus, not because you're an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist or a shepherd or teacher. If you are a believer, then you're someone who's been entrusted with, commanded to, the work of ministry. So it's not you know, paid staff. It's not pastors. It's not missionaries. It's not whoever. It's the saints. All Christians do the work of ministry. But why? Why should we do this work? Why should the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, why should they equip the church? Why should the church go out and do the work of ministry? Paul tells us, for building up the body of Christ, to build up the church. That's, that's what we're trying to do together, to build up the church. He also tells us, when we can stop doing that. Look at verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. So, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, equip the saints for the work of ministry. We, the saints, do the work of ministry, and we do it until we're all fully mature. And we can take a break. That's the goal. And let's make this clear. None of us are there. None of us are mature. None of us have arrived. None of us are done. And that's really important because I think there are times where we falsely believe that we are. Right? I think even like... There's a tiny part of me in the back of my brain when I say, like, none of us are done. Like, what I mean is none of you are done. (laughs) Listen to this quote from Paul Tripp about this. he's, He's talking here in this quote about leaders specifically, but it applies to everybody. He says, every leader is a person in the middle of his own sanctification. No matter how long we've been in ministry leadership, no matter how well-trained, no matter how theologically mature, we are all still in need of future spiritual development. We all have blind spots. We all have dreads of susceptibility to temptation. Each of us has character weakness. 
We are all still in need of the rescuing, convicting, transforming power of the gospel. Right? You're not done. I'm not done. We are all still in need of future growth. And the good news is that that is what the rest of us are here for. Right? I think that like, I think sometimes we feel like acknowledging that we're not fully sanctified out loud is going to like change things in our life, right? Like other people are going to look at us differently. Other people are going to think less of us if we admit that, that, that we're weak. But the reality is that's why God has put other people in your life to, to help kill your sin, to help make you stronger, to help make you less mature and more mature. Like we exist for one another for our ongoing sanctification. Look at the alternative to growing toward maturity. Verse 14. So that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is the alternative. The alternative is us just kind of being dragged all over the place, not rooted in Christ. Back in verse 13, he, he described maturity. He said it was attaining to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So what Paul is saying here is that, is that mature personhood in Jesus is two things. It's knowing Jesus and it's having unity with his people. So simply put, maturity in Jesus is, is drawing close to him and, and drawing close to his people. Immaturity is being unsteady, distracted, easily swayed by things of lesser importance, getting drawn away from Jesus and away from his people. So instead of that, verse 15, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Jesus. So we mature in Jesus and we draw closer to one another by speaking the truth in love to one another. Now here, I think it's important to point out because of how this verse gets used a lot is that I don't think when Paul says that we speak the truth in love that it means that we say hard things in a really kind way. Although, do that. That's better than not doing that. I think when Paul says that we speak the truth in love, he means that we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth of the gospel. In Ephesians 1.13, he said this, In him, talking to the Ephesians, you also, when you heard the word of truth... The gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So for Paul, the word of truth is the gospel of their salvation. So he's talking about the most important truth we have to speak to one another. And so when you are, are just, you know, living out of your flesh, me coming up to you and telling you in a very kind way that two plus two equals four does nothing for you. Like I've spoken a true thing in love but it was absolutely unhelpful. Instead, what we need to give one another is the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, how that applies to our current struggle with sin, how we're, we're forgiven because of him and our obedience has been purchased in him. We can walk with grace by the spirit and, and pursue our obedience in him because he has empowered us to live a different kind of life. Right? Maturity is us drawing closer to Jesus and us drawing closer to one another. And the good news of Christ is what accomplishes and motivates and empowers both of those things in our lives. 
After talking about Christ being the head of the church in verse 15, Paul explains this, that that Christ is is holding the church together, that when each part, each member is is working properly, then the body grows and, and builds itself up in love. These things are accomplished because Jesus is over the church. And that's good news. Because that means that, that me reaching maturity, you reaching maturity, it's not ultimately dependent upon us and our individual or even our corporate ability to do these things together. It's based on what Christ has done for us. He is ensuring that we reach maturity. He is ensuring that the church builds itself up in love. Paul's desire here is for the Ephesians and, and for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He says, we've been, we've been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Like that has happened. Our salvation is accomplished. And now we get to walk it out with one another, with humility and gentleness and patience and, and bearing with one another in love so that we remain unified in Jesus. He wants us to use our gifts to serve him so that we're drawn closer to him and closer to one another so that Jesus builds us up together in love. He wants us to be built up and, and grown up so that the, the end result is us reaching maturity. So the application for us, is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to be people who are characterized by humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, not because we're the ones doing it, but because Jesus has purchased our obedience, because he is the head of the church, because he is ensuring that that we reach maturity together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you haven't left us alone. But that you, you call us forward. You urge us and draw us deeper into relationship with you. That you don't leave us in our immaturity. You don't leave us alone so that we're, we're listless and distracted. But that you've, you've brought us to you and you've brought us to one another. And so we pray that, that you would do the work that only you can do. That you would build your church up in love. That you would, would drag us when we're unwilling and draw us when we're not closer to you and closer to one another, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to walk with humility and gentleness and patience, that that we would, would bear with one another, even as we realize so many others are bearing with us in love. Jesus, thank you that you not only paid for our failure, but you purchased our success. You purchased our obedience. You've prepared good works for us to walk in. And so we pray that like Paul urges us, that we would walk in a manner worthy of that. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.